0: Together, we're going to dive deep into raw and honest conversations with real people. My hope is that through these stories, you too will be inspired and ready to tackle whatever's holding you back or breaking your heart. Then you'll be free to live a life of purpose and true fulfillment. I promise it's possible. Let's Relevate. Hey friends, it's Rena Olson. Welcome to the Relevate Podcast. September is National Recovery Month, and fighting for people and families impacted by addiction is one of my life's callings. Today's guest is Kirk Driscoll, founder of Vision Warriors Church, a nonprofit dedicated to helping people reclaim their lives from addiction through long-term recovery. Kirk himself is in recovery, and this month will celebrate 10,000 days of recovery. He has spent his life giving it away in order to help others struggle. He is a next-level inspirer of others. Ladies and gentlemen, the Reverend of Radical Change, Kirk Driscoll. Perfect. Kirk Driscoll, welcome to the Relevate podcast.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me.
0: Well... Super fun to have you here in the studio, and I'm excited to fully learn your story. I know little bits and pieces about it. Did
1: you get I to you... hear it all today, I guess. I
0: know. You've got quite a story to share. So why don't we just start, you know, give us a, kind of the introduction of who Kirk Driscoll is, a little bit about your story. Um, you on?
1: So, I mean, where you start is that, you know, pretty much born and raised in Alpharetta. have three children two of which are now in college. Still amazing to me. And my youngest is starting ninth grade. So we're soon to be empty nesters without a doubt. But, um, yeah, so really, you know, went, went to school here in Alpharetta. My wife and I were at the same school together. That's a funny story for a whole nother day. So (laughs) she was not around me much because she says I was into sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And that was not her cup of tea. So we didn't spend a whole lot of time together in high school, but, uh, Got out of high school, went to Reinhardt, uh University here in, in Georgia, graduated from there, and have been really into real estate development, holding guys where I built my career, spent most of my professional tent making, I guess individuals call it, as uh, there's what pays the bill still today. Was exposed to recovery and picked up my only white chip, or not, I always say not hopefully, <laughs> uh, by the grace of God, and continually every day, I won't pick up another ever, or have to pick up another ever, so that's it's approaching 10,000 days, that's uh, but got introduced to recovery here in the North Fulton Market, mm-hmm. have lived here throughout my entire recovery journey, and couldn't be more grateful.
0: So let's talk a little bit about your journey through addiction. It happened to you as a young man. Yeah. You could just share a little bit more with us about yeah, do. So.
1: Uh, it started, I would say, with Ritalin as a child just from being medicated for ADHD. So with that, it's, it's not like I blame my parents by any means. You know, the, the way that things are done today are far different than they were at that point in time. And more is understood about that. But if had I take them as prescribed, it would not be an issue. What happened there is when I quit taking them and then started substituting. So I had been medicated to be able to think and concentrate and go through. But when you remove that, now I say, okay, hey, well, there's this big gap in the way that I used to feel and where I'm at today. And so I found alternative uh, substances to get me back Mm -hmm. to that kind of level playing field. And what started out as an innocent, the backyard with my friend smoking his brother's weed Mm. turned into, Oh, this really slows my thinking. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so for a lot of people when they smoke weed, they wouldn't be more productive, but in mind the mind quits racing, hamster wheel starts going slower so that I could focus or at least be more focused Mm -hmm. on the item that was directly in front of me or the obstacle they're in. And so it started there and it was it was hidden it wasn't something that i was using to gain attention or friends it was a coping mechanism that from there just grew into a out of control abusive to those around me myself Every, you know always searching for that feeling that i received the first high that i never got again and i mean so from the first time i got drunk i chased that feeling that was old soldiers day my eighth grade summer, yeah, say. so that's how it started.
0: August in Alpharetta, Georgia, and probably 95 degrees. Oh, I, of I, could, of I, if,
1: I would love to have a video of that day just so I could see how big of a wreck I was at 15. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's, uh, mm-hmm. but I, rem- I remember the night, I remember to feel it. And that's, that, there again, chase that every time that I drank to feel the way that I felt.
0: Mm-hmm. Did you spiral after that? I mean, did it quickly become out of control or were you able to kind of keep it from your parents? Or so Kevin,
1: for my parents and that really everyone, you know, was the weekends deal through high school. My drug use was with very few people and it was very hidden. It was not because the friends that I had, it was not part of their, they drink on Fridays and Saturdays, but they weren't. They weren't doing any drugs, right? Mm -hmm. And so that was that that two part life type kind of complex, so to speak, is that okay, this is the friend that I do this with. Mm -hmm. This is the friends that I do this with. They didn't blend and change until I went off to college. Mm -hmm. I went off to college and now the restraints were off. You know, who are you? How do you want to be? It was one of those time periods. You know, you go through transition of life. Is that, coming through oh, that yeah. transition, it's okay. Hey, what do I want to be known for? And who do I want to be known as? My buddy Ike left and went from 60 to 120. And uh, I was a wreck.
0: What did your fall look like? And how did you get help?
1: So I knew that I had a mess because I was starting to already, well, I'm not going to. I'm not going to drink tonight. I'll just, uh, you know, I, I may do this with some friends, but I'm not going to drink or hey, I'm going to drink this week, but I'm not going to do anything else. And I remember that feeling of, okay, I've got to try to figure out how to control this. Not that I so much. I had a problem, but this isn't what others are doing. Mm-hmm. I didn't know there was a solution though. Right. Mm-hmm. So in that moment, there was pain or discomfort, but I was young and naive and didn't know. Hey, there's a way out of a way out of this. Mm-hmm. And so, what actually happened is my sister's the one that turned me in to my parents. They knew that you know that I was probably doing you know I was drinking and all yeah. that. But they didn't think that it was anything. Was it because I you know other than one time at like sixteen or seventeen had they never. You know, had any kind of issues that surfaced that had to be dealt with. It was, it was controlled from a standpoint. My drug use or alcohol use was contained. So we would go to the mountains for the weekends with friends, or we'd do. It wasn't drinking in the house or drinking in the cul-de-sac and getting. It was. Yeah. It was trying to be as responsible as we could when we were irresponsible. If that makes <laughs> any sense, right, in our mind. But you didn't want to get in trouble. I mean, it's a small town. And if you get in trouble, it's. Yeah. Yeah, everybody everybody knows. And then you really get in trouble. But so I didn't know that there was a solution. My sister told my parents about it mainly I still think because she was upset because I was doing so much with her hus- now husband mm-hmm. that was as, as out of control as I was. And so by she stops me, it stops him type kind of deal. And my you know maybe she loved me that much, we'll see. <laughs> but needless to say I remember coming home, they called and said basically to the effect like, Hey, your mother's not feeling well. I need to take her to the doctor. You know, can you just come home stay the night tonight while I take her to the hospital? Sure, no problem. Came down there. And when I walked in the house, you could you could hear it and see it and feel just it was uh it was an intervention. What I didn't realize is how much I wanted that. And like you
0: were how old?
1: Twenty. Yeah, so this would have been around April 23rd of 1990, 1995. Uh, Cause my legitimate sobriety date is the next day, not that day. The next day mm-hmm. is the 24th. Um, so this was probably the twenty. may have been a day. I don't remember if it was a day or two before or the day before it was not the day of, I do know for several reasons we don't have to go into that Contact. I wanted to go out with a bang, but needless to say, that conversation led to the freedom how of how did ju-
0: you react when you realized? I was
1: really grateful.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm surprised now when I look back, I didn't fight it. I didn't it was like, yeah, hey, this is it's there. Cause I'd been thinking it and I had been experiencing it, but I always kept making concessions of why. Yeah. I didn't realize I was just young and night. I had never did, been exposed yeah. to, you know. Then we didn't have the internet. We didn't have all, you know, individuals a day just around drug use, alcohol use. There's more exposure to the negative sides of it. There wasn't in '95. There wasn't anybody talking about the negatives of their kids doing dope or whatever. You know, it was referenced of like the, you know, oh you were a hippie, right? But there's a there wasn't that you're destroying your family, eroding away the. It just wasn't there. The fear of death wasn't attached. To addiction, Mm -hmm. it was just irresponsible use kind of action. it's like, you know, how long are you going to carry this irresponsibility forward? So I didn't have any resources around, but that invitation in to that conversation, they had a different perspective. They had already looked at what needed before they called me. They already looked and saw options. And with that, We selected a treatment facility here in Atlanta, but it's your typical medical base. They thought I had just purely a medical condition based on information they received. So they sent me to a medical, you know, facility for 30 days to, there's no telling. I don't know what it cost them. Um, But it was a waste of money other than the introduction to one person. And I would give anything to know who that person was. I can't tell you if they were black, if they were white, if they were green, if they were 10 foot tall or two foot tall. I can't tell you anything about this individual other than he was always smiling and he was coming to hang out at a hospital with a bunch of people that need a lot of help that were sick, not me. I just had a drug problem, not a drinking problem. And he'd come there and he'd volunteer his time to run an AA meeting. Like, this guy's like he's crazy. I don't get it cuz these people are really sick that are around me, not me. But I believe him. Mm-hmm. You know, you got the doctors telling you, "Hey, look to your left, look to your right. One or two of you aren't going to make it. One of you is going to struggle, but you might get. You know, it was the it was that condition in your mind. Failure and relapse is a part of this process. So don't worry when you come back through the door. It's okay. Relapse is a part of recovery. It is not. Relapse is part of active addiction. Mm-hmm. You know, relapse mm-hmm. is failure to main la- maintain the lane that you said you're going to do. Okay. No one gets in a car. Uh, I got an argument with someone last week, two weeks ago. They said, no, relapse is a part of recovery. I said, okay, when's the last time you went to the beach or on a trip? They said, I said, it's great. So when you're in the highway, in your car, and you're running 80 miles an hour, have you ever thought about just opening the door and jumping out? Is that part of your trip? Right? Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, well, I mean, that's not fair. is exactly fair. Yeah. Is that you get in and out of your car all the time, but you stop the vehicle, pull you pull off the interstate, you get on the exit, get off, pull up to where you're going, stop the vehicle, put it in park, open door, and get out. That's how you properly X a vehicle. Same with recovery, mm-hmm. you know, jumping all over the rail back into use is not part of recovery, yeah. It, but it's been preconditioned that it's okay, yeah. it's felt you know, it's it's not. Part of recovery it's okay if you do it let's just decide you wanted to go get high but say it is what it is i chose to no longer be sober and deal with life on life's terms and i wanted to go get high so anyhow this guy he came in and he had a different truth or he had a different message that i believed because i'm looking at him like dude i don't know why you're here but you're smiling and I don't remember if it was a day before, a week before, whatever it was before I was finished with my program there, that I asked him, I'm like, okay, what do I need to do? Like When I leave here, I had no plan other than I know my parents are scared to death, they're upset, and they've spent this money. I got to, shit, I got to make it look like I paid attention a little bit. Yeah. Like, let me get some of their money where so. How can I not act like a complete crazy person for a moment, you know? And he then, we didn't have, you know, apps and all that. He handed me a brochure and it was all the AA meetings that were in the North Fulton area. He said, you need to go to a meeting. And I was like, well, what else? He goes, go to a meeting. They got it from there. And I'm like, what What is this guy talking about? But I'm like, okay, if he's this happy running a meeting – And he's telling me this is where I need to go, and that's what I'm going to do. Because the hospital that I was at, the program I was at, didn't give you anything other than, hey, if you relapse, it's all right, don't worry, come back, we'll welcome, you know, we got the the special relapse prevention deal for you. You know, so no planning, no communication, nothing from them other than, oh, you've completed your 30 days, congratulations, here's your diploma type deal, and your parents Mm. pick you back up. And I remember riding back up 400 north and – the silence, and then finally, it was either my mother. And my father was like, so what's your plan? I said, like, oh, I got a perfectly good plan. And that plan is I'm going to an A meeting this afternoon, evening. And they're like, really? I said, yeah, I handed them the brochure. I said, this is what the guy told me I needed to do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's probably some hesitation in that with, like, okay, so it's not the doctor, it's some guy that's just coming. Yeah, but he's smiling. I believe him. Mm-hmm. This is where I'm going. And so at that point in time, it used to be uh, where the city hall is in Alpharetta. It used to be the, the old gymnasium was there and the Alpharetta oh, yeah. Health Center. Mm-hmm. And so the address was for the Alpharetta Health Center. And so that afternoon or evening, probably evening, um, I pull up in the parking lot, parked a car, you'd park where Academy Street is. Now there used to be the park. Anyways, so I, I parked up there. And I remember walking down the hall, the the sidewalk into the Alfredo Welcome Center. And when I opened the doors, I'm like, crap, I'm late. Because, like, I opened the doors and there was a meeting going on. People sitting all around the table. First AA meeting I've been to outside of a treatment facility. I don't know what it looks like. I just assumed this is the address. 15 minutes early, but apparently they get started earlier than that. So... A guy looks up at me that's running that meeting and to find out 20 plus years later that he's in my Rotary Club, which is a different story. We'll circle back around here. Um, But he was aware of his surroundings. He understood by just a glance up. He knew me because it's Alpharetta 1995. Okay, He was in Rotary with my father. So he knew me. I had caused enough trouble and just that where that was known but not problematic. And he said, I believe that without asking, I believe the meeting that you're looking for is next door, just around the sidewalk. I was 50 feet away from what I needed that I didn't want. I was 50 feet away from what really was the answer and the, the compass that I needed. To be where I'm at today, I didn't want it, but I needed it. Yeah. And he is not in recovery, but he is concerned with those and serving those that are around him. To where when he looked up, I wasn't interrupting. It was that it's actually an Alpharetta Planning and Advisory Board meeting, is what it was. Uh-huh. Like the Parks and Recs or something. It was yeah. a, it was a significant meeting. Yeah. And I walk in, you know, ponytail, earrings, and probably looked like. An angry twenty-year-old, like hey, I go to say, I mean, bunch of old people type yeah, deal. I yeah. mean, as I, I got an attitude, right? I'm not yeah. grateful to be there. It's like, I just, Mm-mm. I'm like, damn, you know, I just, I don't want to go back to where I was, and I don't want to disappoint them. I still don't have a drinking problem. Mm-hmm. That was the but, only but, plan. But, you but had. that's the, my plan. And so it'd been really easy had he just looked at me and I bothered him and had to say, hey, this is what I'm looking for. Would I've really said it? Would I've sat down? What would have happened? But because the way he reacted, it didn't make me just walk back out the door, get in my car, go home or go to the dope man and say, you know, I tried this sober thing and it just didn't work. Not for me. And so 20 years later, he roughly 20 years later, he calls me and wants to go to breakfast or lunch. I'm thinking it's just to catch up on rotary talk Mm -hmm. um, or something work related because he's a planner, uh, like a landscape architect planner maybe a project that he's got going, something of that nature. As we sit there, he, he asked me, he said, do you remember the day that you walked into the Alpharetta Welcome Center looking for an AA meeting? I said, oh, absolutely. And he's like, you know, this is 20-something years ago. He's like, how in the world do you remember that day? He thought he played a small part in my recovery, like he guided me to a meeting one day. I said, well, it's really easy for him. He said, way that I know that day is because that was the very first A meeting that I ever went to in my life. And he said, I'm the one that you just could see his whole facial expression. He goes, well, I'm the one that gave you the directions there. You did not know that? I said, no, sir. I said, I, I had no idea that it was you. And he was absolutely blown away. And so talking about how rotary intersected with my life, it was not just Rotary, but it was someone that's genuinely carrying the spirit of a Rotarian that is really concerned mm-hmm. with those that are around him and wanting to help. Uh, because I interrupted a meeting. You know, punk kid comes in the doors. <laughs> you know, I didn't think, you know, I mean, Same I came in. planning
0: meeting. Yeah.
1: And he just oh, no, it's just next door. Mm-hmm. I mean, 50 feet. I mean, it literally just out the sidewalk around to the, they made us mm-hmm. come in the back door. They went, and let's go in the front door. So we had a little side door that we walked into. Mm. And so that was my very first, very first meeting mm. after that, off of a pamphlet at the right address, but 50 feet away from the door that I needed.
0: So you finally got to the right room. Yeah. Did, did you feel like these are my people? This is.
1: No, heck no. I walked in and I'm like, hot damn. I knew I didn't have a drinking problem. I got like 30 or 40 more years where I even need to consider stopping drinking. I'll not do any more dope. That's a problem. Drinking is not an issue because they're a bunch of old farts in this room. Okay. And
0: these are not my people. These are
1: not. There was nothing that I identified with anybody in that room. Right. Not a single flipping thing. And the only reason I walked in and sat down is because I didn't want to disappoint my parents. Mm -hmm. I wanted them to feel like they got some money worthwhile before I started back doing what I wanted to do. And I we call them old timers. Now I guess I'm an old timer in the (laughs) rooms just because I've been around. It's not anything to do with age. It's just, you know, it's by attraction and by, by following someone to spend where you are. You don't need a degree to help someone. You just need the experience And this is how I navigated the experience. And so this old timer walked up to me. As I'm sure I looked cocky, I already assessed the room. It's like, look, you got a walker. You got gray hair. You got a belly. Like, you got a beer belly. and You don't drink. Like, dude, you've been sober 20 years, and you're fat as a cat. Like, come on. (laughs) Like, I'm judging the room, okay? And he walks up to me, this old timer, and he's like, I'm going to be really quick. He said, look for the similarities, not the differences, and walked off. And so it was that apparent, I'm sure, with my face. And so I sat down in a room, and I was the youngest by 20-plus years. There wasn't anybody close. And the, the recovery scene I've read in the 90s is different than it is today. I made the mistake of wanting to talk, and they shut me down really quick. It's like, hey, you know, we're glad you're here. Do you have a sponsor? No? Okay, perfect. That's who you need to be talking to. You need to sit down, shut up, and listen, because you don't have anything to say that we need to hear right now. Your sponsor does, but not here. And I remember, like, man, these. At the end of the meeting, though, the guy that curbed my conversation came up to me and he handed me my, his phone number. He said, Do, you do anything in the world for you, just call me. I'm like, man, you just chewed my ass out for just wanting to say something. And he made a statement. He said, We will give you everything you're looking for, everything you need with one condition. And I was like, okay. He goes, no, I mean, you're going to do it? I said, yeah. Man. I was, whatever. If you whatever. If I can get it, tell me. Because I'm still, it's all, this is where this guy told me in treatment that I needed to go, that always smile and always happy. So of all this and even being scorned, I still just a fear of failure, a fear of disappointment. I was, willing, whatever you tell me, do, I'll do. He said, okay, that's perfect. Give away everything we give you every day. I'm like, well, crap, that's, I don't have anything to give. Yeah. said, it won't be a problem then. You know, so that was it. So I get in the car, I go home. Parents ask me how it was. I'm like, well, hey, here's what I learned today. And so started right there from conversation one. You know, hey, I went to the wrong place. Hey, someone helped me get there. I walk in there, a bunch of old farts. Hmm. I don't think I have a drinking problem, but he told me to look for similarities, not differences. I opened my mouth. He told me to shut up and listen, not talk to anybody. I need to get a sponsor. Don't know what a sponsor is, but <laughs> I'm going to find out. Right? I mean, that was my summation yeah. of my first. But the difference is, they invited me back and they wanted to see and every time I walked in that door mm-hmm. I felt like I was a part of something mm-hmm. and I was it was a a genuine desire and gratitude that you're that you're there and so from there it's just been a it's been a it's been a journey from from there so
0: so did that message really resonate with you when he said everything you've been given you got to give it away did that? I mean, as a twenty-year-old, was it like?
1: Well, it was the, at that moment, at, at that moment in time, I didn't have anything to give. Hmm. I mean, I was in, I was before that I was in college. I was president of fraternity, and now I'm back living with my pa- living with my parents, and you know they're scared to death. I don't have any. I don't have anything. So what do you? What do you do? Mm-hmm. So it resonated from a standpoint as like it was all prefaced on that none of them I even liked. What it was pre what it was prefaced on was the guy that I had met that I believed.
0: So then did you was relapse part of your story as a young man? Because I can't imagine being twenty where partying is just kind of what the majority of people do. Where did did it stick for you?
1: Yes, I'm a I'm they call it today and they call it a one chip wonder. And really what it boils down to is that I've I've never failed to maintain the lane because the guys that taught me it wasn't an option. If you do these things and you do them every day, you won't ever drink or drug again. It's really simple. Yeah. It's, not, it's not an option. It, I'm not worried about tomorrow. It's still living life in 24-hour blocks of time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We had a whole discussion this weekend at the, the retreat that we held, taking guys through 12 Steps is if you it's AA is now they're rewriting the book again. Let's make it softer and more and tolerable, more tolerable for everyone. We don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. And that is just just call it what it is? This bullshit. Mm-hmm. It works because it works. Right. Don't change it. If you're not ready for it, that's okay. Yeah. That doesn't mean that you're a bad person. But continuing to always try to soften things to make everyone feel comfortable weakens everything that we stand for. Exactly. And when you're apologetic for what someone may perceive, the, the difference between in the late 30s at 85 to 90 percent success of those that go through these this process and live this program are recovered versus 85 percent of people failed now within the first 12 months in re, in recovery and the recovery journey nationwide, mm-hmm. doesn't matter what program you go to, that that's, you know, you, it, it's, it's complete opposite, but there was no other solution. So the guys that it's not, you know, it's not to go to a meeting and we, we, I call it meeting makers. Like it's like, Oh, I make me, I go, to, I go to four meetings a day. Mm-hmm. Okay. You're meeting makers, meeting makers, sharing, about meeting making is not what's going to keep anybody sober Mm -hmm. it may work for a moment to get you into a routine and and this one but the guys that taught like truly to be taught this way of thinking to apply this to all of our affairs Mm -hmm. not just to my drinking but this is a life program not a drinking program I mean requirement to enter it is you have to not be drinking yeah right you've made a decision Mm -hmm. turn your will and your care over to God because you're powerless to this Mm -hmm. So there's no one that I that I ever hung around with or talked to that was not serious. They weren't, they weren't doing it because they didn't have something else to do. They were doing it because it was what was given to them with a condition that I had to give it away. And we're only gonna give it away to someone that is willing to do exactly as we say. And today, and that's what we were talking about this weekend, it is. You know, to stop someone from talking in a meeting today, you would you would be looked at like you have ten heads. And it's like, guys, what ha- What yeah. they need to listen. If they sure. want to talk, that's great. Get a group of individuals. to talk. But this isn't a place just to talk. Mm-hmm. This is a place to figure out. Okay, what did you do? Okay, well, I want to. You know, so but if someone says something in a meeting. And they've, they've been coming around for a week or two weeks or three weeks or a month, whatever it is, and someone's first meeting ever walks in, and this person is talking, and they're sharing their experience, strength, and hope with everyone. If it's your first meeting, you're going to, oh, well, that's what they did to get 30 days. Well, they're miserable. Mm-hmm. The person's miserable. They don't have any understanding of how they're applying. They just keep showing back up, and that's okay. Yep. But if you show up and you're sharing – you know what are you sharing, and and there's just a change there. But what was taught to me was relapse is not a part of what we're doing. So if you want to drink, that's great, man. I can't tell you how many times I was in meetings in my early recovery, where it's oh you want to drink this? Perfect. Here's twenty bucks. Do you need a ride to the store? Take them. Just do us a favor. Don't come back to this damn meeting until you're ready to quit drinking. Now that now. You'd be like, oh, you're going to kill that person. No, that person's actions are killing that person. Right. The the group cannot be brought down to that. And I'm not saying this is every circumstance, but if you don't want it, it's not going to work. It doesn't matter how much you pay for it. it doesn't matter where you go. It doesn't do it. If you don't want it, it's not going to work. Yeah. And if you're not willing to do anything necessary, it's not going to work. And so you go from no solution in the late 30s. And, you know, Dr. Silkworth, I mean, they're the third trip into the Asylum, They're going to shock you. Electric shock therapy is what they thought. Cause you were a hopeless variety. Okay. So you go from there to these doctors, and everybody sees this movement starting with individuals gathering. They're like, what the heck is going on to now, you know, millions of options of treatment and none of them were as effective as what was started. Now, say what you want to with it. But I call that failure and it's failure to it's failure to maintain that is we're trying to help everybody, but unless you want to help, Mm -hmm. we're just spending, you know, you're spending your wills in most cases.
0: Mm. I find it interesting with you that you have, you've continually Mm. helped helped other people. You've been very proactive in giving it away helping the next man, helping the next woman. I see people like their addiction, their recovery, they, they kind of get a little bit far away from it, and they, they stop working the steps, and they, they boomerang back. So I find it interesting that you've been able to maintain sobriety all these years because you have been continually. It's like you haven't forgotten where you came from. You know, you've just been committed to helping the next person, the next person, the next person.
1: It's so, so everybody thinks that, uh, and, and well, I don't know. I mean, it's, there again, I referenced the conversation we had this weekend. We can piss off every church and Christian organization and AA all at the same point in time mm-hmm. because most faith-based, Christ-centered organizations, say, if you come here and stay here for one month or 12 months, you leave, you're cured. Boom, done, send you back. And that is a lie. If you come over here and you go just a twelve step journey now, you know when I walked in, it was they were talking about Jesus. they you know, when they were referencing religion and re- re- referencing God in the thirties, there there wasn't pronouns and there wasn't all there wasn't all that it was. Yeah. They were referencing an organized faith organization of whatever denomination or belief you have, but that was the spiritual condition and awakening that they had. And today it's like you you start trying to put that in and they, they want it to re- you, it's just harder to navigate. But it's why not you just it's a it's a spiritual journey, it's a spiritual condition and the God of your understanding today. So if you're someone's listening to this and they're trying to quit drinking today and they're pissed off at God, congratulations. We don't have to convince you that he's real or she's real or it's whatever it is for you. But if you start your, journey, your recovery journey today of a God of your understanding and a month from now you're still sober and you're doing all these other things for your recovery, but your God of your understanding is the same as it was 30 days before, therefore your recovery program and your recovery journey and your life journey has not moved. You've done things, but your understanding has not grown and so it's a constant development and a constant dependence that's that's growing. And from my standpoint, a lot of people that I see fail is because they are unwilling to do the simple disciplines that are required. Or they do them for long enough, and they think, oh, I'm cured. I've got this. I've got this and they don't want people to know. Mm-hmm. But it's my opportunity was to give away what's been given to me. The easiest way to do that is to give it away everywhere you are throughout the day. So the more people that know where my struggle was and where my struggle is daily, then there's an alignment. And so they know if they have someone that's in need, they can call, Hey, you need to call Kirk. You need to call, call this guy. I met him the other day, man. He started talking about his recovery and I don't even know who it is. Here's his card. Well, who, I don't know who he is. And it's amazing to me That people don't do that. They say, well, anonymity is a part of the program. It is so that you don't bitching or snitching is bitching, right? Like don't snitch on someone or you're Mm -hmm. acting inappropriate. So don't tell them I saw someone, someone there. But there's nothing that says that I can't say I was Mm -hmm. there. There's nothing that says that I can't tell you where I was, the freedom I found and how I got and share that experience and hope, strength and hope with people. Nothing that says that's what we're called to do. Right.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think the biggest thing I've learned from being around people in recovery, those that truly excel at it most are fully transparent. I really think that and and you know, being a person that's not in recovery, that's I've I've tried to live life more like that because I think there that's where the freedom is.
1: Yeah. So what's interesting to me is someone's willingness to not expose every area of their life. And this hey look, I'm not gonna sit here and tell you all my deep dark secrets on this podcast. Hey I want you <laughs> oh, to come show, on. Kirk. I want you to show back up to keep helping vision words, okay? But there are those individual men that know everything that's there. And what I would encourage someone is to listen to this that's always held on to that that thing that they don't want anybody to know about. When they release it, it doesn't have any more control over you. And if you've got the right group of men, choose that person wisely. Uh, Choose that person wisely, a counselor, a pastor, a sharing partner, a sponsor, but choose that person wisely. And if you have chosen the right person that is working a program that is transparent and that is open and is full of grace and love and support and understanding, most likely what you're going to hear is like, oh, yeah, yeah, I did that. Or, oh, yeah, I thought mm-hmm. about that. Or, oh, I know a couple guys that do that. You know, or there's nothing that you've really done on the large scale things that hasn't been done. But th- it's just you just haven't been in an environment or a relationship to where someone's been truly transparent. But anything that's left in the dark will cast a shadow. True. And and that shuts mm-hmm. out every bit of light that is that is ever going to be possible coming from you.
0: Do you think recovery can can be achieved without faith?
1: No. And you'll piss off every single person. Now look, faith is not it is a loose term. Mm-hmm. Bystanders, I believe I mean, this is just my belief. Yeah. There's no reference to anything. This is, this is my story. If you choose the doorknob as your God, and you will pray to that doorknob, and you believe somehow or another that doorknob is going to give you wisdom and strength, then, hey, it's it's going to work. But you got to do it fully. You may not be free. All the promises of AA and all the promises and all the fruits of the Spirit are not going to come to fruition, but you will not drink. It doesn't mean that you're going to be happiest and joyous and free, you know, but you cannot drink. It is a very simple, simple program. The problem is most people are unwilling to maintain a daily discipline to stay sober.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, so I personally think you want my freedom of what I've found, you need to be pursuing a relationship with Christ. Yeah. If you want to, if you talk to the next guy that may, that's Jewish or, this guy, this, this, or that, if you want what they have, you need to be pursuing their plan. But it, uh, it is a spiritual program at the end of the, the day, in my opinion. I agree.
0: So you teed that up beautifully. If you could share more about the pain of discipline versus the pain of regret.
1: Yeah. So Coach Curry was speaking. I was probably maybe about 10 years sober. Eight or ten years sober at the time, and I was at a prayer breakfast um, that North Fulton—I think it's North Fulton Rotary, one of the local Rotary clubs—puts on, and and he was the keynote speaker, and he spoke specifically to the two pains in this in his life, and I don't know who originally said. I've tried to find that who made that statement first, and it's an unknown quote, and you see all kind of revisions of it. But I, I remember sitting there that morning. Here was a coach that was a believer that had no understanding of recovery, based upon what he had shared. Mm-hmm. But what he shared was his testimony. Anyway, so when when he said that, I'm sitting there listening to the way he broke down that, and it made life so easy. Is what the, if like one of those components that I put into my recovery journey up until that point in time? Fear was motivating me a lot. I didn't want to disappoint people with that. And now I got enough time underneath my belt. Like I just need to be a big boy and figure out a way to deal with this without drinking or drugging. But at that point in time, it was when I heard it that day, I was like, holy crap. That is so, we all wake up the same way. We all put our feet on the ground the Mm -hmm. same way. Mm -hmm. But God gave us the choice. All knowing, but not all controlling. What do I want to make of this day? And the way he broke it down was most individuals, when they are approaching an obstacle, they're approaching conflict or an issue, they will circumvent, you know, they'll go around it. They will navigate not through it, but around it. Mm-hmm. And he's like, every time that you do that, and he, he put in an, you know several analogies to it, but if you're not going to go straight through it, you have deviated from your initial, you know, line of sight or your initial desired outcome. And you're hoping when you go around it that you get back on the same plan. But you and I both know if we navigate that way, we're it is going to take us a different route. We may end up at the same place, but the journey there is going to look different. And and he made it really clear. He's like the any pain any level of pain is tolerable if you know why you're going through it because it will end it will it may last longer than you want it to it may last the rest of your life but it will end regret does not regret is forever period and it was just so simple i was like holy Yes. You know, this is, I can, I can do, I can, I can use this and do it. And from then forward, it just changed my perspective Only thing, As painful as this is, as aggravating as this is, this is where we're going. This is the way we're doing it. And this is why. And it's, I've navigated a lot of life that I would rather, you know, I don't, I don't shame it. And I don't really want to go back through that. Yeah. I've been through it. I've done it. Don't need to do it again, you know. Don't don't test me, God. I'm not going to drink. Not going to do any dough. I've done it. Perfect. Let's 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 yeah. move on. And so that's uh that's, that's
0: from there. Awesome. Well, and I think we are fully capable of doing very hard things, but we always want like the easy route. And to me, it's like when you make the investment, when you do the difficult things, that's where life gets really good. You know, you really. You really see what you're made of, and I think the relationships forged in the fire. When you're you have a long-term marriage, I do too, and it's like it's during those tough times where where you gain strength as a couple. So I don't know. That's part of this podcast is I just want to encourage people to do hard things because we're all fully capable of it,
1: without a doubt. But it's your pers- your perspective. It's what what. If you would have told me, you know, in May or June of 1995, that these are the things that I would have done with what had been given to me, mm-hmm. that, that would not have been my perspective on life is not of what it is today. And my perspective is, is shaped, you know, through what happens to me, what I think about what's happened to me and then how I respond to what happens sure. to me. It's like, we, we control our perspective, but if I'm by myself and I'm navigating around all those conflicts, then I'm just still a hot mess. I mean, I got enough problems how it is, right? I need less of me and more of him. Absolutely. And, and, and Don't I can, I can navigate a little bit better. Cause man, I can, I can make a mess of something in a hurry still today. It's just, Drinking or drugging is not a solution mm-hmm. at all, and that's what it's. And I guess that's my biggest takeaway: is today we're not teaching. You know, today if you if you draw a line in the sand, and I'm as guilty as I'm, I'm saying this, and as a guilty as mm-hmm. I've sat on the sideline to not upset, not and not, and not. Uh, because he yeah. can come across as antagonizing or...
0: Oh, you're or a disruptor, that, or, but, sure. but
1: But I'm not at the level that I would like to be because I'm so tired of mediocre just BS yeah. and propaganda. Mm-hmm. And, and then people feeling guilt and shame for... You know, just if you're looking at drug use, if well, they keep failing. Well, just look at them and say, it's all right. Just go get high. Like, that doesn't make that you're a bad person. Right. It just means you're a person that wants to get high and remove themselves from reality. Okay, So when you yeah, land yeah. a plane and you decide that you want to stay on this earth with us, let me know, man. I'd love to talk with you. And yeah. between now and then, I'll help you any way I can when you're sober. Want to go have a cup of coffee? Perfect. I got plenty of friends that drink and do drugs. I just don't hang out with them when they're drinking and doing drugs, and I don't do things with them. that are going to put me in that environment mm-hmm. that where they're trying to remove themselves from this reality. There's plenty, My wife does not have a drinking problem. We have alcohol in our house. Mm-hmm. Like, if I want to, and they're like, well, that's crazy. It's like, if I want to get loaded, I'm not going to get loaded at my house. And if I can't, why should I punish my wife for my failures or my weakness? Mm-hmm. You know, it's by her No, she's never going to put me in jeopardy. She's never going to do something to cause me an issue mm-hmm. and so why would i punish her because this is that was what i was not who i am today who i am today or what i want and so i'm not saying that everybody go put alcohol in your house if you're an alcoholic but i'm saying it from mm-hmm. a standpoint that it's okay if you drink that doesn't mean that you're a bad person you're going to hell right, right? it's just like you know some people can control it but others cannot can't. you know my wife leaves Glass, you know, a a glass with dinner of wine at a nice restaurant. And Mm -hmm. like you look at it, it's like there's only, they only pour like an inch of it in there, which I still don't understand. Like fill the baby up, but they all just put a little (laughs) dab in the bottom of it. And then when you get done with dinner and there's still some in the glass, I'm like, why are you wasting that? Like, come on, pour it on down. You know, I'm done with dinner. You know, it's an experience. You know, it's it's different. And so, you know, the, I punish people like that i don't i don't get I don't understand y'all like that, but that's the size <laughs> of one
0: so kirk, how did you how did you navigate being a person in recovery, especially like professionally, when most people are indulging, especially in alcohol? That's what that. kind of boundaries did you put in place?
1: is that I generally lead if I lead with my biggest weakness, it becomes a strength and not a hindrance. Mm. I was taught. They give this away every day. And if you don't share with where you've been, then there's no way you can give it away mm. unless you just go to a meeting and convince But there's more work to be done outside of a meeting than there is in, you know, inside of a meeting controlled anyways. But life is happening around you. Sure. And the privilege of being sober mm. and free is you can share that with people that you're inter- intersecting with. So everything I always did, and I've always done is I lead with it. So from work to rotary to personal relationships with my wife and I have with other friends is it is a part of my, and Hey, who are you? What do you do? Everybody likes to talk about the weather. i am like, man, weather sucks. It's hot as hell today. Let's talk about, man. I know this guy last week that shot dope and did this. And they're like, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. You want a conversation starter? I'll give you a, <laughs> let's not talk about the weather. You want to have a conversation? We'll talk. And then that way it lets it. Most people are just not that transparent. Yeah. Now I probably got a whole lot of list of people that don't like me, don't want to be around me. That's okay. Those that do know who I am and what I stand for. Mm-hmm. And from that standpoint, if I walk into a room, man, and if you know me, you're you're not gonna ask me if you're asking me if I want a drink. It's not, hey, do I want a drink like they're drinking? It's they're gonna got sprite or tea or water. What would you like tonight? It would be able to sit down at a, a professional dinner and the person sitting next to you remove your wine glass for you, mm. right, yeah. to order for you so when you sit down at a table, your tea or your Sprite's sitting there. That's because you've been transparent. Yeah. And so that wasn't always easy mm-hmm. and enjoyable, and it wasn't always probably done the best way. And I still have room for a lot of improvement of how you share and encourage that that part without setting some bou- some boundaries. But at the end of the day, it's progress, not perfection. You know. Exactly. So we're mo- we're moving that direction.
0: So let's talk about the epic life that you believe you're living based on recovery. So if you can just unpack that a little bit,
1: so it's. Really simple. The way it was explained to me is to live an epic life, you have to do epic shit. I mean, it's like, <laughs> and so if you're sitting around, like, oh, I would like to, I should do it, the should should be removed from everyone's vocabulary. Oh, you, you should, you should just shut up. You should shut up. You should not say another word. Rather than if someone's like, Well, I should go to the gym. Uh. No, go to the gym. <laughs> Like just remove should is like we need to remove it. I
0: cannot stand that word. It is
1: a, it is the most it's, demotivating. Procra- it's, it's professional like procrastination. Oh, it really is. Now there's some things, and I'm sure <laughs> that it can come around to where should is appropriate. I should be softer, <laughs> but rather than me even saying that, I should just be softer. You know, I should be more emotionally available. No, I just need to be more emotionally available. Yes. So but it was really simple. It's like to, to live an epic life, the only way that happens is you have to do epic shit. And there's two people, I think, in this world. People that watch people do things that they want to do and people that just go out and do it. Right. And, you know, there's why sit and watch when you can participate? So if there's something I want to do, I'm going to go do it. I may not be any good at it. I may not be able to do it the way that I want to do it today. But I can do it. And so it's proactive. It's action-oriented. It's not sitting around and watching YouTube and dreaming, oh, I can't wait. I should be able to do that when I retire. Well, what are you talking about? When are you going to retire? Why are you going to retire? Do you even know if you're going to live? You know how many people live their life saying, when we retire, we're going to do this. Mm -hmm. And they die at 35 or they die at 45 or they die a day before they retire or whatever. It's like, how... That's just, I, you, I want to feel sad, really, for him. It's like, you didn't experience life yes. the way that you wanted to experience life based upon what you think someone else wants you or should be doing. Mm-hmm. And that's just, a, I just don't look at it that way. We're just going to go out and go do it. And any time that I start resting on my laurels mm-hmm. and being accepting of traditional, just no excitement, I got guys that are like, dude, what are we going to go do? What are we going to go do? And it doesn't have to be this major crazy thing. A lot of things, the epic thing to do is something that's just out of the norm. It's
0: giving it away.
1: Yeah. That's so where, like,
0: to me, that's where life gets really good.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, this weekend was that an individual that was with us was just on the top of a bluff, not even mountain, a bluff in Northeast Alabama and the Tennessee Valley. You got these, Little mountains and whatnot around there, and and he was sitting there. He's from South Georgia, never been anywhere like this. He's in his mid twenties. He's like, I've never been at this elevation, basically to observe what God has created. Like he had looked at life from a from a you know five foot project like the whole time where his eyes are five five and a half foot. That's his whole view on life. Mm-hmm and looking at rivers and trees. He's never been elevated above to be able to look down. He's like, this is the best weekend of my life. Now, to me, I was just going to the farm in Alabama, and we just went up to a big top of a hill in Alabama. To me, there was nothing epic about that. But because of my willingness to give to him, it helped him create what he says is the highlight, the best weekend, the best trip of his life. Now, that's pretty epic. Yes. So it's how we view it. Because the actual act to me was, not. I've saw, watched that sunset from that hilltop hundreds of times. Mm-hmm. It's nothing new to me. Right. But by the willingness to engage with someone else, it turned into an epic, an epic event because of what it meant to someone else
0: and to see it through his eyes and was, i'm sure all the other guys were like oh my gosh that's yeah i
1: just had never I ne- i've never had that reaction from someone that has experienced the sunset there everybody say it's beautiful man this is unbelievable this yeah. isn't a river we need to call it something different it's not a lake it's not an oak. like what do you what do you co-? we've had all kinds of conversations But no one has had, of the hundreds of guys that I've had up there on top of the hill, no one has had his perspective. But that will go down for him as one of those things that he won't ever forget. Like his view of what God has created changed. He said, "Purely, he's like, I've never seen it, life, earth, these things from, Mm -hmm. from this perspective. He said, it's just something blue. He said, man, look, God made all this. Like, I've just never viewed it from that way. And I'm like, man, how have you not just climbed up top of a hill? But he found South <laughs> Georgia. There are not no hills. You know, not like that where you can get a perspective yeah. of, you know, a thousand foot kind of different of elevation.
0: Well, and just knowing a little bit about your life, you, your dad, three amazing kids, great marriage, business owner, philanthropist, of those things. What's most important to you? What are you most proud of?
1: What am I most proud of? So the first, first of all, so the way I put life in order is God, my wife, my kids, and then what, whatever else comes up. Um, so first of all, I cannot believe God sent me a lady who would tolerate me since 1999. She has put up with some crazy, oh my gosh, God bless her, right? So <laughs> Any counselors, listen to this, you probably, you got a great candidate. uh, Dina's got a halo. (laughs) Give her, give her, I'll give her your phone number. No, but, I mean, without a doubt, it it is not always easy, right? But love is a choice. And so you got, it's no different than any other discipline, right? Lust and all that leaves, Mm -hmm. right? And then it's a daily commitment of devotion and discipline to, to love each other and to walk through life together. And so I'm grateful that that she views that the same way and puts up with my aggravation and frustration that I can create. And she calls me that I'm very black and white. Uh oh completely. <laughs> yeah. But it's just like look, gray will kill someone like me. Mm-hmm. So I'm warm, you know, it's it's one of the two. And so it's been a really fun journey. Um, so super proud of of that and just grateful. My kids Still amaze me every day. Three completely different kids, with without a doubt, and then everything else is there. It's just it's it's I don't own any of it. Yeah. It's not as mine. So it's just what are we going to do and how are we going to be impactful? But the the thing that I'm the most proud of, and that I see just that life is the what has been created through my ignorance and willingness to do what was asked of me because I saw something in somebody that I wanted. Mm -hmm. Right now, it's just, hey, you got that. I want it. What do I need to do? And so my ignorance, because I had no earthly idea, but moreover, my willingness to pursue that, to see where we are 27 years later, almost 10,000 days, all the lives that someone's willingness to serve a bunch of drunks and crazy people, because remember, I was not crazy. So a bunch of crazy people in a hospital nearly 10,000 days ago mm-hmm. to just give his time. He, I mean, I give anything to know who that person is, yeah. right? So that you could just share with them, because you never know where it's at. Someone gave it to him to give away. And every time you can tie that tree together, it makes an impact. So it's like last Friday at Rotary, I had a friend that's that's in recovery visit with me and I pointed to the individual that pointed to me the first aid man and said, Do me a favor. Because he's open with his recovery. I said, If you wouldn't go over there and shake his hand, and tell him thank you. He says, Why is that? And I said, Well, he directed me to my first aid meeting ever. And my body's like, Holy shit, really? I was like, Yeah, really. He goes, I'm going right now. Because he understood The power of a just simple, like, hey, it's just next door. It's 50 feet this way. In the middle of, you know, he never knew the impact that that would have. And so the ripple effect of someone's generosity and genuine desire to serve and help should never be underrated. And to be able to see that at work and relationships that someone that I do not know Never met them, but the stories I hear about what's happened in that person because this person gave it to me, I gave it to this person, he gives it here, he gives it to her, her, you know, and it, it ends up all these relationships downstream to know that what was given to me is being honored and what was given to me is being passed on. So that that's probably what I'm the most proud of. Yeah.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit about your rotary journey because – I know you have invested a lot of time, heart, soul, resources into Rotary. What what kind of resonated with you with that organization? Why do you think you just got in with both feet?
1: Biggest thing that changed for me when I grew up with my dad in Rotary, mm-hmm. and I visited with him, I went with him. But when I was asked and pursued to join, when they knew who I was, you know, I was pretty open with what, what I'd done, but yet they still want to be a part of the organization. I was like, man, I've got, I had another group that I can be. And it's like, hey, I've got to give away what's been given to me. And this is a service organization. All they do is serve. It's not a networking club. It is a service organization that's focused on others. I mean, Rotary's motto is service above self. Mm-hmm. So if you've been ordered or taught to give away what's been given to you, and now you've got, that kind of motto and view on life its like, man, this is awesome. My platform of relevance and ability to serve multiplied overnight and my ability to get deeper engaged and deeper rooted in my community. And then the amazing thing was the more I was open about and the more they understood what I was passionate about, the more opportunities that it came to be able to serve within that area of of focus, And so, every position from club president to everything I did at a district level and everything else has always been led with, hey, unbelievable opportunity that I'm here, but I want to let you know why I'm here. What, you know, my addiction led me to this organization, and here's how and why it did. And so, I mean, what I can't wait to be there Friday morning with my friends, but I know what it's, I know what we're doing in the community, and so... If I have an opening or opportunity or feel that I need to serve, if I haven't done it enough, there's a whole long list of opportunities that I can get out of myself and serve someone else with it. So it's an unbelievable organization.
0: Very cool. And I think it's a call for the young people to engage with Rotary too because, yeah. you know, I think a lot of people think of it as, oh, my dad was in Rotary. And- yeah.
1: Pale, frail, and stale. <laughs> I mean, that's what I think. But- yes it's a bunch of old white dudes eating lunch together Mm -hmm. man oh man has it that's just that's not you gotta think it's from a generation of where you gave and how you served you didn't talk about Mm -hmm. and now you have this whole ideology of that's just who's there but our club is one of the most diverse groups of individuals that i'm around yeah i mean from multinational to I mean, every, every, we yeah. cover all just about every bucket that you can, and that's an Alpharetta. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so you would think it would be this, you know, it's it's different, but it's that's not it's not pale, frail, and stale.
0: No, absolutely not. Well, let's talk about vision warriors. What does vision warriors? What does it mean to you to be a vision warrior? And just share a little bit more about I mean, that organization. So
1: our biggest thing, if you look at kind of our mission missioner and vision of guiding someone through it is that it is a vision where someone is willing to push through and battle through pain in pursuit of their vision for their life to be a better disciple, father, friend, neighbor. You know, I mean that that's what it is. So are you are you gonna fight for it or are you gonna roll over? If you're gonna roll over, hey, let's take you down the street. There's plenty of places that wanna feel beds, You know, and that's just not what we are in um everybody comes to us in a different state and a different place of where they are in their journey. And we're not a treatment program. We're not clinical. You know, we can't fix all world's problems, but if you can admit that you're not God and that there is a God and you're willing to do what's asked of you, then you're welcome. You know, it's very few requirements outside of that. And so 90 plus percent of how we operate is all disciplines, not rules. And they're governed by those that are there. So if the house is dirty, it's because you've let culturally let the house become dirty. Mm -hmm. So who's the weakest links that are allowing that to happen and remove them? You know, it's like most organizations are afraid of removing people. And that's how it got, you know, I keep referencing this weekend, but it's, we had about an hour and a half, two hour conversation of, of how soft recovery has gotten. Mm -hmm. And so there was a controversy of, I was too abrasive. American it, life has gotten so And I said, look, I said, we haven't created anything special. All we have done is just to enforce what was given to me. I said, is that if you want it, we have it. If you don't want it, man, we're going to help you pack your bag. You don't have money? Okay. That's okay. Are you willing to work, you know, for yourself and become financially stable as you, as you move forward? If not, we need to find a high, higher level of care for you because something else is going on. You know, it's. Treating adults like adults rather than trying to find out every way that we can create a special reason to treat yeah. you differently. Right? We're, I'm not that special. I'm not that unique. So what can I do to help you? Mm-hmm. And, and Vision Wars is I never in a million years would have thought we would be where we are today. Mm-hmm. And it's just like what we I said at, this, at breakfast this morning when we had our, our team meeting. is like some days I wake up and I'm so pissed off. That we organized into a organization because then you become a target of attack
0: mm-hmm.
1: because people say they want to help you they want this but they, and well they don't want an addict in their backyard mm-hmm. the stigma of addiction is real it is but yet apparently it doesn't it doesn't matter unless you're just burying white kids in suburban areas. And they'll talk about it, and they'll scream and holler about it, and you got to stop this. But what you understand, if you take that off the street, let's kill them there, a drug dealer is still a drug dealer. So it's not like he's going to go to Corp. America and get a job. He's just going to start selling something else. So we, we have a cultural issue. We don't have a, a drug dealer issue. Hmm. And the frustrating part about things is it's just, you know, we're, we're criticized when our whole call is just to serve. And while I'm grateful for everything that we've done, that we've done, but as soon as you put a name to it, an organization to it, then they, they'll critique everything right. you do. Well, you're not this and you're not that and you're not. And it's like, yeah. And what is your point? We are here giving away what has been given to us doing what the church should be doing on a daily basis. Hello. Yeah. Just serving those in need around you and not judging them. Right. right? We are not for everybody. But golly, it's like, you know, yeah. it's Not the, in my
0: backyard. Yeah. And Not then you want backyard. to look at them and say, man,
1: it doesn't have to be in your backyard. It's sitting on your front porch in your den. It's at your bank teller line. It's at your grocery store. It is everywhere, everywhere. around you. And uh, so I am grateful that there's more conversation over the last four or five years because of the victims that it was creating. It was, it was getting more, it's got more attention, but then, it's really, it's a tension in chasing at the wrong problems where the, the solution is there and it's free. Right, right. And it's just, but the pain and emotions. So I know I derailed off your question on that, but we're, we're here just to truly, Vision is there to serve those that are in a time of need. And I, I really don't want this organization to be categorized or limited to our impact that we're having based on how many beds that we have. Because mm-hmm. while someone's asleep, we're not really doing anything for them because last time I checked, if you go to bed sober, you wake up sober. So as long as we can help you stay sober to the time your eyes close, we can do that. You don't necessarily have to live with us to help you. So our impact can be far reaching beyond just the amount of beds that we have. And so while residential care is a huge component of what we do, mm-hmm. it's just a piece of what's being offered.
0: One last question for you: What do you hope your legacy is?
1: Mm. The my legacy that really is centered around radical change. Mm-hmm. That there's so much focus on the things that everyone thinks that you should do, that set off of some standard that's so jacked up. I mean, it really is like this is what you should have. This is where you should go. This is what you should you know. Can draw a whole list. At the end of the day, that that someone would would truly not lose hope, and because when you become hopeless, there's there's about no point of living, and have been there, and now to be full of hope and full of the ability to do whatever it is that I want to do, it's like what what I hope is left is that no matter that somebody has got a piece of me. That will intersect with as many people as we can to just pull them out of the, the trenches and darkness of hell. Mm-hmm. And like those are all lies. That is not from my father. Here's what he has, and this is what he can offer you. It's really it's just providing hope to the hopeless of continuing to give away what has been given mm-hmm. to me.
0: That's a life well lived right there.
1: It uh, uh, It keep is. Keep giving
0: it away until. There's nothing left. And
1: still falling short every day. And when you focus on it, you're still falling short. There's always there's there's so much that can be done. So it's just where do you draw the line at the end of the day?
0: Yeah. Well, it's been fun getting to know you and to have a chance to work with you and help give it away. It's it's truly an honor and a privilege no, to does. serve those that just need a hand up. I mean, you know, and I think that's there's such a misconception around recovery. So I know you, it, you bristle at the, the term halfway house. Oh, yeah. And people, when people say Vision Warriors is a halfway house, and you're like, no, it's not. Just kind of unpack that a little yeah. bit. So about, you
1: think a halfway house is created because you had to have an address get out of prison. And I just think a halfway house, if we're just being real, is halfway between prison and death. You just are stopping halfway between, you know, because there's no sense of purpose in it other than an address to give your pro officer. And this isn't a knock on anybody else, but we were nowhere near a halfway house, a flop house, just a traditional sober living or traditional transitional facility. And, and several reasons by one is we don't take anybody that's court ordered. There again, it's not that you're a bad person. It's just someone else is determining for you that this is what you need. Great. There is wonderful programs that can help you further that part of your journey. And once your court order is approved and done and over and you've satisfied it and you want to come live with us, then you can petition for membership. But you got to want it, not someone else telling you that this is what you want. And culturally, that in itself shifts every uh, dynamic Unbelievable. And there's plenty of organizations that do a great job programming everything for court-ordered individuals. We don't. Nor do I feel like God's leading us at any point in time ever to do that. That's not what was given to me. It was given to someone that was ready, willing, and able, but completely clueless and lost. And the only hope that I had was in the fact that it worked for you and I believe you because you're smiling. So please give me what you got. So... Where we look at is that we're a Christ-centered home that provides housing for a few, but provides hope for anybody that wants it. And you look at that, it is a living, breathing organization where you have to be fully vested in a community, fully transparent, and fully accountable. And if you're not, we'll ask you to leave. And, you know, more people or they get the guys coined it. They said, change your heart or change your address. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, okay. That's good. So, but the uh, guys, I have one vote in the community, not the vote. Mm-hmm. So it's governed by right. the membership. So you're only as strong as your weakest link in our homes as well as life. Mm-hmm. So who, who is your, who is on your team? Who and you you've got to be able to pull those that are weak in the center of the flock, and if you can't, if the change too weak, it's not going to hold. It's, it's not going to hold, and it's going to derail. So, you know, most organizations like us are dealing with all kind of issues. Our biggest thing is that we're dealing with dirty dishes in the sink. Well, hey, your bed's not really made. You say it's made, but you spent two seconds. If you'd have spent thirty, could we imagine how it? Like, you know, hey, curfews at, at midnight. Why you keep coming in at 11.59? You're not talking to anybody. Why don't you come in around 11, 11.30? You know, it, it's not just figuring out how you skate by. Right. It it's is, back it, to that discipline again,
0: uh, again yeah. and again.
1: Yes, I guess the thing is, if you make your bed, if your shoes, you know, you can have 24 coat hangers, three metal drawers, two plastic toasts and six pairs of shoes. Shoes need to be underneath your bed for a reason. If they're underneath your bed... And it's the bed that you got to make. I'm getting you very close, or I, not necessarily I, our organization, we organizationally, we're getting you closer to your knees twice before you leave the house every morning. So it's like, you know, I'm not going to make you pray in the morning. Hey, this is what I do. This is how I start my day. When you're making your bed, you're already right there. Like, just see, you're halfway there. Just bend on down the rest of the way. Oh, you missed that opportunity. Okay, wait, well, hey, you're going to bend underneath your bed and pick up your shoes, your hat. Wait, you're already there again. So you're giving them that opportunity yeah. twice. But if they see their roommate doing it, then it's like, oh, it's, and so it's just creating those opportunities and being intentional. So there again, so. vision wars at all, we're not all that smart. We're not all that sophisticated. <laughs> it is just really simple, straightforward, just truth. Yeah. And it works for some, not for all. And so we're pretty easy to pick on. If we don't do this right. We don't do that right. We don't. We don't really care because what we're doing is what we're feeling led to do. Mm-hmm. And at any point in time, the entire membership can come together and change exactly how we operate. Up and up, uh, other than three or four core competencies of no court order, have to pass a drug test to enter, can't be a sex offender, can't be court ordered. Outside of those four things, mm-hmm. anything can be changed, and it's. The way it's been for nearly 10 years, you know, mm. 10 years other than they did change one. Sorry. they change. You have no vape material, vape, charger, anything vape related inside the house. Mm. Because there's no way to hold anybody accountable if they're vape. They can smoke and vape. They just got to do it outside. Right. But vaping is not like smoke. Someone lights a cigarette in the room, you can tell. Yeah. Someone's vaping in the room, you can tell. So they, that has changed. Sorry. But, uh, but that was the community decision that here's a discipline that we need to change because of current situations and so it's pretty pretty awesome so come out and check us out someone's listening wants to see it you're more than willing and more than a all you do is willing because the door is open let us know when you want to come and we'll be happy to have you
0: people are randomly drug tested oh yeah as part of the program and of course there's no alcohol or drugs on site yeah um, so to me, yeah. that makes for really good neighbors.
1: That makes really good neighbors to you know. To, uh, oh, we got needles in everywhere in the parking lot. I'm like, what are y'all? To, like, oh come my on. gosh! Yeah. So yeah. actually, the better part is, don't tell us you're coming until you're in the parking lot. So then that way you can see exactly who we are and how we operate at all the times, yeah. and um, you know. So it's uh, we're great neighbors. Yeah. And and I have
0: found. People in recovery are just some of the best people on the planet, yeah. for real.
1: Some are, some some are like everybody else. I mean, look, let's be honest. If you were an asshole before you started drinking and drugging, you're gonna be an asshole after. So you got to change. And some reason people just think, "Well, I quit drinking." I don't know why they still think that. It's like, well, well. let's look at it, Kirk. You were before, so you're gonna be after. So you got some work to do. I mean, so that's you know. That, that, there again, that's my opinion, but it seems to hold true for me personally. He's like, whew, man, where'd that come from? Oh, that's me. <laughs> Can't blame it on a drink, right? It's just, I just, that's me. I,
0: yeah. I have a hard time with that, yep. with that label for you. Well, You're, I can do it. You are an inspirer of many people, and I just thank you for your time today and for you sharing your Amazing story of recovery and hope.
1: Thank you, thank you, Keep thank you. Keep up
0: the great work.
1: We'll do it. Thank you. Ten
0: thousand more days.
1: Y'all will and be great.
0: Working alongside Kirk, I can tell you he is in the trenches, day in and day out, giving it away, helping one man, one woman at a time. Many who are desperate and ready for life change. Who do you know that needs to hear this episode to hear Kirk's story of what's possible when we are ready to finally change? To stop settling for the pain of regret and instead ready to embrace the pain of discipline? To learn more about his organization, Vision Warriors Church, visit visionwarriors.org. For those of you who are struggling with any type of addiction, take heart in Kirk's story and know that hope, and healing is possible. Please reach out to a friend, a loved one, attend an AA meeting, or contact your local church to get started on your own radical life change. I promise you can do it. I'm Rena Olson, and this is Relevate. Oh, you can find me on Instagram at Rena Olson, and that is R-E-N-A-O-L-S-E-N, or on the web at rena Olson dot com.